Hi everyone. Welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it Lessons from Our Living Rooms or Couch Conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including, well, what do I say when and what do I do when, so that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. All right, welcome everyone. I am glad you are here and you will be too. I am thrilled to be joined by Marcy Alvis Walker today. Welcome, Marcy. Hi, good to be here. Yeah, I will give folks a chance um, to tell a little bit about themselves and how their personal and professional work brings you to be in this conversation now. Um, Well, Marcy Alvis Walker, I am a writer and a content creator. Um, I have a blog and an Instagram feed called um, Black Coffee White Friends. And for a while, I had a Patreon um, community called Mockingbird History um, that I no longer have. Um, I just get overwhelmed with so much work. And what I do is I basically write about my cultural experience being um, raised as one of the few Black families in a very white community um, back in the 70s and how not understanding that moment made me not as prepared as I would have hoped to have been when I was a parent myself and parenting an African-American child and trying to navigate school and education and not understanding the history of what all of that meant. And basically what landed me into the work that I do now, the writing that I do now, is that when Donald Trump was elected, I wanted to be sure to write down my thoughts. Um, We were in a very closed, conservative, Um, Christian community that was because my kid went to a private Christian academy Mm -hmm. and a lot of things started to come forward that I just didn't even know I was going to need to navigate. I I was, I was really in this kind of utopia la la land. I had really bought into the colorblindness sort of identity that everyone bought into the seventies and eighties that, you know, we're all one race. We don't see color. And I realized, that, oh my gosh, at that moment, that 
color very much was being seen and experienced. And um, when I was, when we were at that school, my kids in college now, but when we were at that school, I learned that they were going to be doing slave debates. And that kind of sent me on this journey as to having to speak up and to speak out and to share my feelings about that with a white faculty um, who, of course, didn't see color, <laughs> but saw it when I brought it to their attention, how awkward that would be for my for my kid. But then having to educate them on, well, it's not only awkward and wrong for my kid to do, it's also should be awkward and wrong for your kid to do it, even if your kid's not black, because there's no debate. Slavery was wrong and offensive, and there's just really nothing to debate about that. Um, and so... It was interesting because the reason that the the head of that history department wanted to do it was that she wanted kids to understand how someone would come to believe that slavery was, um, how someone could be pro-slavery. pro-slavery yeah. So I thought it was really funny because I was just like, yeah, but there's so much else that the church is against that you would never want kids to, to understand that perspective. Like, you don't say, I want you to see how someone becomes a murderer. Or I want right, right. You to- Let's argue for adultery. It was really weird. And I thought, and as she told me her story, she grew up, she's a generation ahead of me. So she grew up in Selma, Alabama. So her experience was she came from a, a family that had been extremely um, segregated and pro-segregation. So she was, she had done her work, but not all the way there. And so it wasn't that she was trying to do something that was awful. She was just doing something from her own experience without thinking of the experience of everyone in that room. For instance, you're assuming that just because all these kids are in a Christian academy that none of them have any race, racial um, biases. You're assuming that they don't come from families. We're in Texas. At the time we were in Texas, you're assuming a lot. And assuming things that I, I, I would never assume <laughs> in the land of Texas. But, um, you know, we eventually left that school and I wrote furiously um, in my blog, letters to my daughters, letters to that community in particular, letters to white friends um, about my own experience. And I started to, to wake up to, um, to become more present into all the parts of, of me and, and that included history. And so that's what lands me on the podcast here today. I do have a lot of parents who followed the Mockingbird feed when I had it. And um, a lot of parents who still are with me today to divest some of that whiteness and some of that supremacist ideology um, and that colorblind language um, in hopes to have a better understanding, not just of themselves, but of, uh, of the world at large, I would say. Uh, no, thank you for that. That's I can't imagine the the arc of that, right? Because there's there's layers to that in terms of your experience and how race was navigated differently in the '70s and '80s. And then I think I think there's a commonality. I mean, many differences, but a commonality in terms of parents sort of struggling to figure out parents trying to do. The, uh, a right thing, right? Trying to be, as I often say, trying to be part of the solution, not the problem around this stuff that is so multi-layered. And we're just ill-prepared. We're, we're, we're just, you know, we're just not prepared. And teachers, like I was resonating a little bit with your experience, um, watching schools that have predominantly white faculties understand that they need to be talking about race and they need to be showing examples around race and bringing history into the classroom in elementary school, et cetera. And, and it, you know, it's 
it's one book that's read aloud and there's no like people are not skilled to handle the the after effects with kids on the playground in the classroom trying to figure out how to make sense of something that hasn't been practiced for them at home either um so yeah it's it's really the more we can contribute to folks feeling comfortable talking about this being willing to make mistakes along the way what what was the hardest part about seeing seeing it like was it pain I don't know how to describe it. Was it painful? What was the, what do you think of the barriers to folks just accepting that racism and white supremacy really dictate a lot of our dialogue around this? What do you think is the hardest part for folks about believing that when they hear it? Well, I would say, you know, you were saying, um, you, we were mentioning teachers and parents in the playground and a lot of times how um, we're just not taught but I don't think we have to be taught about race. I just think we have to be taught honestly about our mm-hmm. history. And I think just in that alone, we're doing a greater good. And I think one of the biggest problems that I've come across is p- the fear that people have of the history, that the, that the history seems to be debatable. Um, because when it's uncomfortable, um, you'll find that people will want to find a reason that it doesn't matter, the uncomfortable parts. They'll, they'll say things like, uh, well, but slavery happened a long time ago. Or they'll say, you know, just all, we've all heard the things. But what I, what I think would be useful to us is to be okay with the truth of it. Because if we could be okay with the truth of it and see where we have landed, which isn't as far as we could go, but it certainly is further than we were. (laughs) Um, It's quite an extraordinary journey. And, And I really wish that people weren't so fearful of our children hearing the truth and knowing the truth because kids are remarkably resilient with these things and also wise. Um, we just don't give them the ability to, to use those tools. Also, kids are unfortunately in some cases really creative. So if you don't give them the narrative, they will create one. And this happens over and over again. It's happened in my childhood. It's happened in other childhoods. Because if we don't tell kids why there's racial difference, why people, if we don't give them the, the, the reason that it's because some people have a certain um, chemical that more in their skin than other people, <laughs> if we don't give them that reason, kids will come up with their own reasons. Yeah. Um, to differentiate race. And usually it's not nearly as kind because kids also intuitively believe that if something's not talked about talked about openly, that it must be bad. That's where kids go to. If, if mom and dad don't talk about that, or if they never see it, um, if they never see people of color and positions of leadership. Yep. And positions of care, um, as far as nursing or just being a crossing guard. If everyone that they see that protects their little society is looks just like them, and anytime that they see someone who doesn't look like them outside of their society doing something that is wrong, they will draw the conclusion that there must be something wrong with those people. Yeah. And mom and dad don't talk about it, or grandpa has a lot to say about it. Or, you know, like it, there's there's just a lot that goes on in their minds. Yeah. But kids love a truth. They love it. They, it's, it's the reason that kids just, they want to know why the sky is blue. And the thing that you, and you can actually look this up. I used to know the reason why the sky was blue because I had a questioner. Um, my kid was a questioner, questioned everything, collected rocks knew all the names of beetles and spiders and all that sort of stuff, was that kind of kid. 
and knew all the names of trees, had a tree book that they made with all the leaves and different leaves and which ones were deciduous and which ones were evergreen and which ones had more sugar in them. I mean, just went on and on and on. This was the kid that I raised. So I tell you what, a kid's blown away when an adult answers the question. So if you look up why the sky is blue, if that if a kid comes to you with that question, or why are there clouds, or whatever it is, the best thing that you can do is either search for the answer with them, mm-hmm. or answer it. It blows them away, and it dispels all of the myths that might be created in their minds, right? So the same is true of race and ethnicity and gender, that if we actually do the research and the work to answer the question honestly, kids then can move on. They can move on to, they they accept that as the truth because it makes sense to them. Um, And it also makes them feel a bit more secure in the world because there are answers. But when kids don't feel secure in the world and they don't have the answers, they create them for themselves. And I can tell you as a kid who grew up with those kinds of children in the 70s and 80s when we did not educate our children at all, that the answers are usually cruel because different for kids is just, it's the same as when you put something different on a dinner table. Kids just (laughs) respond to difference with such offense and very, very few will, will lean in with curiosity. Yeah. And what an interesting with your, the background around history and race and power. I mean, this, the fear around the critical race theory debate, I, I, I literally I'm stammering, which is uncommon. I, and I'm, it's not like I'm shocked. It's just, it's not, this is a whole new concept that people are afraid of the idea of actually teaching history or talking about things that might make white kids uncomfortable. Uh, you know, nobody wants to make white kids uncomfortable talking about this stuff. That doesn't surprise me. But the scope and the energy, like the scope of the resistance and the energy that's being put into f- flagrantly lying to kids. So it, it must be... Like that, that this critical race theory debate taps into some of your areas of, of uh, passion around teaching history, understanding history, how that informs our conversations in the present. Um, where do you see this critical race theory debate headed? Like what stands out to you? Again, debate, where even using that word, I air quoted for those of you who can't see me, um, which is all of you since this is a podcast. <laughs> Um, so what do you, how, like, what do you, tell me what your thoughts are about the critical race theory and and where, are we going to silence that anytime soon? Or are we going to be living in an era where we're having to fight to even get to the place to have some of these conversations? What are your thoughts? Um, (laughs) I'll start with the second half of that question. Where do I think it's headed? I have absolutely no idea. I've, I've long stopped predicting. I, I would never <laughs> predicted that we would be here with it anyway. So I, I have no idea. Um, for, for all I know, in our in our country, it could, it could go years from now. It could be the thing that everyone wants a piece of. I, I honestly don't know. I mean. It, it is literally, it came out of left field in that way. And just so listeners know, um, critical race theory truly is something that was developed by African-American law students as a way to look at law in case studies that they were studying, to actually be able to look at them and say, um, oh, um, this is how race has affected this case. Um, this is why we still have segregated schools. This is why even though we've, we've done all the law and all the, we've passed all the amendments, we're still in a racialized society. And basically looking at the law and cases that you wouldn't think about. And honestly, um, those cases of critical race theory usually have a lot more to do with um, 
white people um, and, and not and not so much about blackness. It has a lot to do with, say, there was a case that where a white guy sued for discrimination because um, he felt like he he felt that the the program that this company had to um, get more black employees in, involved in engineering discriminated against his rights. Critical race theory talks about the in, intersectionality of that, but it, but more so about the fact that there was a, a black woman who also didn't get that that position because black men were the ones who were so it's 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 so complex i don't even feel comfortable talking about it because it really is the a training that happens at the graduate level critical thinking about race is an entirely different thing there's no acronym for that that's just critical thinking about race and i think that when parents heard it they thought that, that any any kind of critical thinking about race was CRT and and it's not it's 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 kind of saying teaching a kid about evolution is making them an evolutionary like someone who believes in evolution and it's like no teaching kids about the different species and how a tadpole evolves into a frog or how the dinosaurs were here and now they're not, isn't anti-creation, it's just biology, you know? But, um, and I think that's what's happened to our history is that this feeling that if we tell the truth about what happened, if we tell the truth about the systemic way that it happened, if we tell the truth about the caste systems that were in place during slavery, during Jim Crow, during the Black Codes, um, during Antebellum South, if we tell all these truths, somehow that is going to mar whiteness. And mm. it's interesting to me because I, I'm just like, well, to people of color, whiteness is already a danger. It, it, that's, it, we're, not, we're not, we didn't need CRT right. or anything else to tell us that we had our own experiences. But I always think it's strange that people assume that the kids will align with the enslaver. I'm like, they're also abolitionists. There are also a lot of white people doing really wonderful things um, in the name of freedom and equality. There are... Um, other people that, but we can't talk about those people. If, like, for instance, um, in a lot of schools, believe it or not, they pulled Ruby Bridges' story. The Ruby Bridges story. They pulled the book on Ruby Bridges, and um, I, I find that so interesting because then you don't get to hear about this wonderful teacher Barbara Henry, who literally picked up her life to go into this work because she was so willing to integrate schools and her whole um, experience of teaching Ruby Bridges for all that time, just her and Ruby Bridges. And so we don't get far, like the kids could easily see themselves as a Barbara Henry, or they could see themselves as the first um, family that broke that, that picket line. Um, and that was a white family. It was um, a pastor who took his kid and said, hey, I'm going into school and I'm I'm not gonna be afraid and I don't want my kid to be afraid. But we don't we don't get to teach about that either. So it's it's very interesting to me that the obvious assumption for them is well then it's gonna teach that all white people are bad. And it's like, well no, you know, Harriet Tubman didn't make it to the North on her own. There's a whole line of white people that helped. With that, but we will never know their names because we're too scared to know the name of the oppressor, and that's unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, there's just and there is, right? and you can see how that just perpetuates the ignorance, the othering, the the that kids are going to fill in the blanks about why it is that schools are segregated or schools in certain parts of town are less 
less funded or less, you know, whatever, don't have new buildings in their eyes, they, kids' brains associate, right? Kids learn through associative learning. So they're going to link what they see with people who look different than they do with surroundings and jump to their own conclusions. And it's, to me, one of the big pieces in having folks be able to talk about this differently is really truly to understand the systemic pieces. Ironically, if you're thinking critically about race, you actually can make it less of a personal issue of are they a racist or not a racist kind of a thing and look at the idea that that the systems were insidious, they were interwoven, they were very intentionally done by a few people making decisions. So it's not an accident that they've lasted and been entrenched as long as they have. And and there's there it's sort of I'm you know baffled because in some ways there are ways to talk about the system that that wouldn't make every white person evil that would actually understand the larger forces at play and yet it just seems as if i mean again and again and again collectively white decision makers around this are fine with excuse me fine with kids kids of color carrying any shame about the lack of information provided, but not, we don't want any white kids carrying any shame. It's like, if the shame comes anywhere near anyone, it shouldn't be our kids because that was a lot, you know, it's like all these ways to deflect pretty significant, consistent um, harm. And that we can't have it, it just feels like we're, it's really hard to move forward in conversation if we're still able to debate you know, whether or not these bits of history happened or how to talk to them or why they, you know, why they happened for sure. Also, I think um, I want to say that to, to, to parents out there who have friends or family members or just any listeners, you'll, I have family members who are very, cause I'm married to a white man. So I have family members who do not want to have this conversation. They absolutely do not want to have it. And I, I, it, it's been difficult to navigate my own life with, with them. Um, and in some ways, we've had to part ways because of that. But I know one thing that I do know, and that keeps me a little bit sane in it, is that It's not that they don't know the truth, it's that they're fearful of the truth. It's not that, so when we see these parents out there with the signs, the CRT signs, they're showing up at school board meetings, I think we need to not paint racism at different levels, but we have to look at fear um, and (laughs) deny of how racist a person is, but how scared are they? And what are they afraid of? And usually when you start to figure out what they're afraid of, they're afraid of what they may lose, what it might cost them. And that cost means for a lot of these parents to this day, a lot of it is, well, I won't want my kid to be, I don't want my kid to be racist. And I want my kid to, you know, hold hands with other black children, just like Dr. King said, but what I don't think I want is for my kid to marry someone who is Black or Hispanic or Latinx or Asian. I mean, those are really the truths when you get down to it. Um, yeah. The truth is they're afraid of what they could lose because then how does that, how will that look in our family? Um, what will the children be like? We saw that with um, Prince and Meghan Markle how they had to navigate that even um, in the royal family. It's true even here that sometimes those are the things. And so when parents say, Dr. King said he wanted all the children to, because they'll use that, that quote, that one quote from Dr. King. But the thing that they're not recognizing is that literally there have been laws that have been passed, redlining laws, real estate laws that were passed by the government to make it virtually impossible for your kid to ever have to hold hands with a black person. And so it's fine and good that 
that um, that Dr. King said that, but even later in his ministry and in his work, he said that he didn't think that the dream was ever going to come. Like he, 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 he didn't see it happening even after the civil rights acts were passed that he just didn't see it happening because for every act that did pass, there was a counter act that went on behind the scenes. And one of the things was housing segregation, which came straight out of, um, the government. And so when, 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 um, parents say that, I often throw back the question of, well, why do you think that your kids, how, why do you think your kids have not held hands with a black child? Or why do you think your kids has has held hands with more children that have looked like them? Even if they have had a black little friend, it's only been one, two, if you're lucky. And that usually gets them thinking, what do you think has made that not possible? Because the thing is, is just as sure as they weren't showing certain homes to Black people in white communities, they also were making sure that poorer white folk had a different community than Black people. So they even segregated at the... Um, at the poverty line to make sure that there were, there was housing for white people that just wasn't there for black people, um, even in the poverty lines, which is interesting because we all know the poor white communities and we know that it, you'll find a poor white community in every city. And then you'll also find a poor black community and you'll find a poor Hispanic community or a poor Asian community and it's segregated to be that way because they don't want um, these poor communities to band together and come as one and to demand more justice right. from our government. Yeah, I mean, there's, as we said, even at the onset when we were <clears throat> chatting about this, is there's so many directions to, to go with it. it, it I really want to just highlight what you all of the things you said, but especially when you said, instead of asking how racist or not a person is, ask how afraid they are. Um, ask how ask how afraid they are and what are they fearing? And I just, that's, it's really poignant because if we don't figure out how to talk to that, how to disarm part of the fear, how, right? I'm a, I'm a psychologist. So you gradually expose people to the things that they have intense fears about and it meaning it, meaning the conversations, meaning encouraging critical thought in general about race. And, and if we, if we're dropping facts about things. I mean, it's, it's important. The education is a huge part of helping folks understand and see a bigger picture, but there is an emotional component that unless we start talking about there's fear, there's shame, there's guilt, there, you know, there's these things, it's going to be really hard. I don't think you can do one without the other. Think that, that it doesn't do any good to be hanging out, talking about people who are afraid without giving them skills and facts and education. But, but they, to me, they really need to go hand in hand because fear really motivates people to avoid a ton of stuff. And we see we're living the consequences of what happens when you avoid uh, these conversations in terms of the racial divide in our country and the, and the difference in outcomes in, in all kinds of different ways and the misunderstandings and the, the violence against communities of color um, that is, we're, we're, we're living with what happens when you avoid uh, doing this. How, what, what are some things that you would recommend? Like, what are your to-dos for parents? So if a parent is saying, I wanna be part of the solution, not part of the problem. What are, do you have either like resources you love to point people to like your blog? is awesome. Uh, and other things like where do they, where does it start? What are the ways to, to, to get more right in your home about 
race and talking to kids about race and racism and racialized society? Well, first of all, know your history. Um, I think I think that's 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 key in point because I, and I think to make make it interesting, find out the history of where you live. Um, Chicago, I live in Chicago and I've lived in Austin. They have the very they both have very interesting racial histories. Dr. King said Chicago was one of the most violent places he ever visited. Um, this man preached all over the South had, had, and had all kinds of... He was stabbed by a woman, for goodness sake, and he still said... And that happened down South and still said that Chicago was the most violent of his experiences. So there's a racial history here. Um, Austin has a huge racial history, not only in regards to the African-American community, but also in regards to the Mexican-American community. Um, so there's a lot of history there. I think that's really important. I think to know um, what happened to the indigenous communities um, that lived where you live. And I think those are interesting projects to take on with your kids because it gets them asking questions and it also gives them a truth and a place of identity um, of knowing themselves. And it doesn't have to be this guilt-ridden thing. It's just a cultural awareness. And um, I think it's it's interesting. I, I also think a really good place for parents to begin, especially when you have we small ones, is to do an inventory on just how white your world is. Um, as a Black person, I had to do that inventory. I realized that my kids, we lived in a predominantly white community, and, and most of everything that my kid did was led and um, created by whiteness. And to start to figure out ways to challenge those assumptions. And also to do just little things that make us a big difference. Um, this is a tiny one, but one thing that parents can do is to seek the help of people of color. I think that it's really important that if you can get a pediatrician who is a person of color, a pediatrician that's a woman, a pediatrician that isn't um, the patriarchal standard of what a doctor should be, um, to have, because otherwise you'll have children who the only people of color that they know are the people who clean the dishes or mow the lawns. So I think to have people at different professional levels that you actually pay and whose um, work you value um, and who are maybe more degreed or more skilled in an area than you are is really important for your kids to see because when they don't see it, they assume that it doesn't exist mm -hmm. and that blackness is just there for service and entertainment mm -hmm. and, you know, entertainment and sports. But um, we know for a fact that blackness is more than that. And that's a hard thing to do because as a black woman, finding black doctors is really, really hard <laughs> um, and, um, because of the system. It's not because we aren't as brilliant and lovely. It's just because we have not had the same opportunities. And then I also like to char charge challenge people to challenge your school boards because with this question that if there is no systemic racism, which is what most school boards are saying, that there is no racism, um, we're all created equal, um, there's racism against white people too. They, they, that, that's what you're in the school boards. I think the question needs to be statistical. You, you have to bring statistics to them and say, okay, if there is no such thing as racism, why is it that black people make so much less than white people? Why is it that there are fewer doctors who are black? Why is it that um, black women earn more degrees, but they still earn, make less than most. 
Like ask those sorts of questions because what it does is it pushes people into a corner and pushes yourself into a corner because if it's not systemic racism that's happening, then what you the only thing you could say is that there's something really wrong with black people. And most people would go, oh, no, I would never say that. And it's just like, well, then what is it? Are you saying that all those parents over at the black school don't care about their children as much as you care about your child at this white school? Are you saying that they're um, that they're not capable of having a community? Because if it's not systemic, then that's the only solution, that there's something wrong with black people. And we know from um, science that we are 99.9% the same, um, no matter if you're what you are. Our biological DNA makeup is pretty much the same. So we don't have thinner blood. We don't have um, smaller brains. We don't have, nope, none of that. So it's either that there's something wrong with other people of color and, and really something wrong with black people and white people are just better or there's a systemic problem at, at, at on hand. And for women, when women, it's a little easier because you can honestly just transfer that and say, okay, you know that there's a systemic problem with sexism in every institution. So why in the world would you think it would be different with race? Yeah, and I really appreciate that just because in some ways, looking for a silver lining in the way that the conversations around race are so are, are so hard and frustrating is there's so many places to step in with advocacy. Like there are so many places, places to try to show up as an ally with school board, like to say to the, to ask those open-ended questions. So then, right, how would you explain that this is what's happening in education and then just be quiet sit back you know ask open-ended questions a lot because and I really appreciate your languaging around that like there there are places to to step in with schools to urge them to find people who know how to talk about this stuff and to build curriculum around it and to take up space and make noise so that what we know is there's a really vocal smaller group of people pushing back against teaching and talking around race. And they're making a lot more noise than the folks who just don't want trouble, don't know how to talk about it, don't want to make a mistake so they don't step in, you know, kind of a thing. And it's, this is where you step in. The stepping in is half the work. You'll make mistakes. You'll embarrass yourself. You'll, you know, I mean, all of these things will happen. Because Lose family. Yeah. Yes. So, yes. I'm just gonna tell you what what what's at stake here. Yeah. You will lose family members. Yeah. Yeah. You will lose friends. Yep. You will be called a heretic. Yeah. You will be called divisive. You will be called racist. Yeah. I, I'm just I don't want to sugarcoat yeah. it for anyone out there. That that's what the job is. Um. I think. In theory, it always looks beautiful to be an advocate and to be an ally, but in practice, it can be quite lonely, Um, particularly as a white ally. Um, As a Black person who advocates and who speaks, I I have a Black community at any given time. Even just going back in history, I I can plug into a community. But um, as a white person, in a white neighborhood and you see all the signs on your on your on the lawns you know um go brandon signs and um q signs maga still circle yeah um, you'll see these things and when you speak up and out it is very offensive to um those who feel betrayed by you and I don't want to, it's it's very different for me because for me to speak out, people, well, that's a black woman, of course she's going to say that. But for uh, you 
or any other white person out there to speak out. Believe me, my husband has had some interesting things said <laughs> about him and about me. And that's that's never easy. And I've had also, uh, a lot of white friends who have ha had to go through that. They've lost church community. They've lost a lot of things. But what they've gained is not just a sense of equity for me or for my people or for any other people, but just a sense of equity for themselves because racism doesn't only hurt black people, racism hurts the society at large and it really hurts white women more than you know. So um, when you come to, to recognize that, oh, we continue with the system eventually, it's just going to continue to hurt us. And we saw that with COVID. Um, we saw that with insurrection. We saw a lot of the ways that racism and racial divides hurt white people. And, and I want to be very clear why, why I bring those two things up. Because white people were told that Black people were getting COVID in higher numbers. And the reason that um, black people were getting it was because they didn't know how to care for themselves. That wasn't true. The reasons that black people were getting COVID more was because white people who were unwilling to wear masks, unwilling to get vaccinated, um, were also in the same workspaces as, as white, as black people who had less access to healthcare and less, um, um, less insurance to help them through um, and less resources in their communities, but yet they were providing the services that we all depended on during the pandemic. They were providing them more. Yeah. And often to people who refuse to wear a mask or refuse to get a vaccination. So it's, that hurts. It doesn't seem like it's hurting white people, but it did. A lot of white people died too. So it's yeah. it's a sad thing. And a lot of um, um, people got really sick and still are sick. Like we still don't know the lasting effects of COVID. We don't know what how it will change or, or how it will show up later. And the same thing with um, the insurrection is that when when people feel lied to, which is what they were told that they were lied to, you get mixed in with a lot with this big lost cause ideology that's come from a long way from the Confederacy. And so you have a lot of white people believing in their heart of hearts that they're doing the right thing. Um, and they'll tell you that it's nothing to do with race, but unfortunately, though the people who organized that event were proud boys and promise keepers and people who have very much been against racial integration. And so we have to think about these things when um, how it hurts our own communities to be so resistant because then you are um, very susceptible to any sort of rupture. Yeah. And that's sad. And it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. And I know. So I, that's, yeah, just really appreciate you, you. There's so many things that you've covered. And I could talk for days and days. And, and, and as we as we wrap up now, I really love that, like, just just focusing on how we we there is real risk to trying to figure out how to say more and do more. And that it isn't some martyr cause where you fall on your sword for this group of of others that that it that it's really, as I said, we're we're living with the effects of what happens when bystanders don't become upstanders and when uh, we 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 all are I mean, disproportionately, people of color and black Americans stating the obvious are still far more uh, intensely impacted by racism. But until white people understand that that it's 
it's impacting all of us, all our schools, all our jobs, all our communities, all our neighborhood, that it is a significant shaping force that, that, and, and feel empowered knowing that they're going to be hard stuff. Absolutely. I absolutely will lose relationship. I've been spit on. I've been called all kinds. I mean, like it's crazy. The stories that come from taking up space when you're questioning a status quo and when you're encouraging people to think critically about something that we have kept silent and that we've intentionally obscured and uh, out of fear of the loss of right but that that quote that i referred to a lot is when you're used to privilege uh equality feels unfair or it feels like a loss or something along those lines like when somebody's pointing out to you that there that there are these uh forces working in your favor to acknowledge those means, you know, means that there's a lot more work to be done and you have to be able to tolerate some pretty significant discomfort. So, so thank you for being part of the conversations, Marcy Alvis Walker. We're going to link all of your stuff so people can, can find where to have more conversations and how to follow you around this as just a conversation and thought leader with this stuff. And I just really appreciate your time to come in and sit and spend time with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. All right. Well, we'll look forward to more. Hopefully we'll get to sit again at some other point in time. Of course, I would love that. That'd be great. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. Just a quick note here at the end to say I am so glad you joined and I hope you are too. And if you'd like to connect with me more, come take a look at my website, www.drlauraanderson.com. There you can join my newsletter, keep in touch and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation uh, and Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today. Thank you.